man, these things are never easy. Um, everybody say the word Hesed. Hesed. I um, want to, uh, you see some artwork up here. And I wanted to um, give you, oh man, it's cut off a little bit. Um, I want to just um, in, um, give a little bit of honor where honor is due. Uh, Destiny. Uh, I commissioned Destiny um, to paint these three pictures uh, for illustration of the sermon. And um, I, um, you know, my budget's a little bit smaller, and there's some people that got bigger budgets than me. And so if anybody would like to pay some um, Hesit prices, some generous, to really encourage destiny. Um, I really want to encourage you all to um, buy these pictures, uh, buy these paintings. Uh, I grew up in a church that literally um, encouraged and commissioned me and gave me opportunity to be an artist, to grow in leadership and to do these things. And so I wanted to at least um, do a guarantee, but I want to take this platform and say, hey, I want to encourage somebody else to um, purchase these um, pictures. Uh, otherwise, they'll be mine, and and I'll be blessed. So, um, yeah, I want to want to jump in a little bit um, in this introduction, and I want to um, teach a word that's really helpful to understand the context of Ruth. Um, there's a word called theodicy. Say the word theodicy. Yeah. One more time, theodicy. See, theodicy is uh, a theological concept that talks about the tension that the Bible explains that God is a good God, yet there's a big problem and a challenge of evil. So if God is all-powerful and if God is good, then why does God allow evil to be in the world? This is a significant um, theological um, discourse, but I'm just going to give you a quick summary of what the Bible says And the whole scripture basically summarizes in this way that God is good, that the fallen state of this world is very evil and brutal. And so it's in the midst of this evil and brutal world that God gives, he spreads his hesed, his good loving kindness uh, in the midst of a brutal and evil world. And that's the story of Scripture. And one of the ways that uh, um, God demonstrates this is really uh, through the Scripture that you will see that the Bible just kind of reports the news of a brutal world. So when you look in the Old Testament, like uh, when you see things of like genocide, um, rape, and uh, incest, and just a lot of ridiculous, crazy stuff, you got to think about it just like an author writes a story, and you got to say like, hey, here's the details of what just happened. It's not saying just because you said this is what happened means that you felt like it was okay. Does that make sense to you? And so what you got to do is you got to see kind of at the end of the story, what's the moral of the story out of the like brutal, heinous things that have happened, uh, is that, uh, does the author say that was okay? Well, the Bible definitely allows um, and, and reports the brutal world that's going on. And there's two reasons why this happens. One reason is when you read the story of the Bible, there's one hero. Who was that hero? 
Jesus or God. Um, Jesus is generally always the right answer in Sunday schools, but, you know, we'll just say the general term of God. And then uh, God centers the story of Scripture. Like, our sacred text is like God is in the midst of people on the margins. See, the way most human stories uh, work is that there are um, people, um, the heroes tend to be the strongest, the smartest, the most beautiful person, and that is uh, who the hero of the story. But when you look at the scripture, the people that God has spent the most amount of time with are people uh, from the margins. And so if you, um, it's important to understand this as we engage in Ruth, particularly because the Bible was written in a context of a patriarchal society. What is a patriarchal society? It basically means it's a man's world that's ruled by men. And, and women, their role is basically for the pleasure of men or to re- reproduce more men. Like, that is the historical context in which the Bible was written. But when you look at the very beginning of the Bible, the Bible says that both men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. And then after the fall, you began to see there got to be some hierarchy, there got to be some patriarchy, and there got to be some oppression that began to happen. And so all of this is really important because if you don't understand this, you won't really, you'll reduce and you actually kind of will make up Ruth into be a love story, and which is not a love story. It's a story of God's grace in the midst of patriarchy. And so we have um, a hashtag going on called Me Too Times Up. And the thing that is important to understand is that this is like thousands of years times up. In America, this is like the best period of time for any kind of woman to be, to do anything. But there's literally places around the world where it's horrible to be a woman. I got a chance to go to Thailand last year, spend a little bit of time in I was observing in the red light district. I was not participating in anything in the red light district. It's really important to understand. But I literally was about to throw up in my mouth by the things that I saw. And there was no, it wasn't a lot of options for folks um, in that space. There were a lot of young girls that looked like my underage nieces uh, that did not have choices uh, about their situation. So this is the context in which um, the scripture is being written. And we know that God is a God that cares about the oppressed, that cares about people from the margins. And unless the scripture uh, accurately describes what's going on, that we won't get a chance to get to know God on the margins. So the last um, thing that I want to share just before we even get into reading the text is it's important for us to pay attention that this is a book written in the context of patriarchy, and there are, out of 66 books in the Bible, there are two books in the Bible that are named by women. That God wants to speak through the margins of gender. God, there even in the Bible are images of God um, that are feminine images of God. The word El Shaddai means um, the breasted one. When we talk about uh, nurturing on the milk of, of God's word, we're talking about nursing in an image that way that women can only produce milk. In Acts, it talks about we live, move, and have our very existence. That's an image of the womb of God. 
And when we don't press into understanding the feminine image of God, that we're missing a ton out about who God is. And so I'm making all these pre-qualifiers is because it's important to understand that Ruth is not just for women. I thought I got more amens out of that, but Ruth isn't just for women. God wants to speak to all of us, and we really have to lean in. And I have personally been really blessed in the preparation of um, this text of study in Ruth, and I've also been studying some stuff in Esther, and we just, we, we, we're missing something by the generations and thousands of years we've been silencing women's voices. So it's important this, that if you would, um, let's read uh, this text, and if you can, if you have the ability to, please stand up um, as we read the text. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of your ours. And tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Let us pray. Lord, I just pray uh, that the words of my mouth and the message of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Uh, Lord, there's a lot in this text, a lot that applies to our community right now. Lord, I pray that, you know, just come against any distractions, both internally or externally. I pray, Lord, um, that you just give all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, both to me and to uh, those on the sound of my voice. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. So if you would, just raise your hand if anybody's over 30 years old here. Over 30 years or older. That's cool. All right, you can put your hands down. Do you remember when you were the future? (laughs) I don't quite know where I am right now, but nobody is like, David, you're the future. You know, like, there is something um, that is inevitable in life, and that is that you get old. But what is not inevitable is that you grow up. Growing up takes a little bit of intentionality. Um, I am about to approach my 20-year high school reunion, and there are some people that have not quite grown up yet. Growing up is something that um, uh, takes a lot of intentionality, and there is uh, there is uh, um, nothing that grows you up like prayer and suffering. Prayer and suffering are the two things that grow you up like none other. Like, if you look at the story of Ruth, you get a chance to see some people that grow up. 
you get a chance to see uh, um, Naomi, who had a life that centered around God. And uh, um, and it really seems like when you read the author, there aren't a lot of uh, um, the way the writer writes it. Um, it's not like God, it's like God does this and God does that. Most of the text in here, when we're talking about God, is actually not about God kind of intervening in ways where you can totally see that it's God. It's actually Naomi praying to God. That is how our understanding of seeing God and seeing God like answering prayers and, and them trying to figure some things out. And, and you see that there's some maturity that happens from Ruth, I'm sorry, Naomi and Ruth praying and talking to God. Now, Ruth grew up in the hometown of Bethlehem. When she left, she was a young woman. She uh, um, had a husband. She had two sons. Those two sons married a daughter. Uh, but then uh, on life hit really hard. She lost her son. She lost her husband. She lost her other husband. And, and just to make sure that we all understand, this in a patriarchal society, a woman's survival was tied to any kind of family relationship that they had of a man. It was either the father, it was the husband, or it was the son. And so when she left, she left as a vibrant uh, woman that had a family. But when she came back, she got beat up by the school of hard knocks. She um, spent a lot of time praying, a lot of time crying, a lot of time being weary and worn down by the cares of life. And what we see is like when she was walking up, there were some friends of hers that like uh, never left Bethlehem. And they were like, hey, is, is that, is that Naomi? She looks kind of raggedy. And she was like, hey, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. Because God has dealt with me bitterly. Now she was expressing how she was feeling with God. And she was rightfully so depressed. And angry. And hurt. And feeling forsaken. And then when you look at the Psalms, um, you see that this is a normal feeling that humans that interact with God engage with. Because God doesn't always talk in ways that we can hear. God doesn't always do the things that we want him to do, and it's not always full of joy every single time. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter because God has dealt with me bitterly. But here's the thing. Naomi kept steadfast with God. The first lesson we learn about growing up through this narrative is that there is a depth of maturity that you get when you begin to see God through teary eyes. We can't only, only revelation that we get from God can't just be in our devotional time. It just can't be in our joys. We got to sometimes get with a, a depth of, of getting to understand God through teary eyes. And that teaches you some things that you just would not know. I, this, this is something that I've experienced in my own life. And, and there are some of you here that are going through a major health problem. There are some people that might be going through a major depression or heartache. Or you're waiting for God and you're saying, Lord, how long, how long will this happen? How long will this keep on going? And you're starting to get to see God through teary eyes. I want to say, don't give up. I want to say that, that there's going to be some maturity that's going to come 
out of this pain, out of this persistence that, that, that God is going to reveal and is going to mature you. I also want to say that you need to pay attention to, to keep your eyes on God because you don't know who is looking at you. See, it is through uh, um, Ruth's steadfastness on God that there was something about her revelation, her depth of spirituality that Ruth said to, to Naomi that, hey, uh, where you go, I go. I want your people to be your pe- my people, and I want your God to be my God. See, see, Ruth's life was shipwrecked too. Her husband was dead, and, and she didn't have any children, so, so, so she was not an eligible um, bachelorette for somebody else, for another husband that wanted to get some male uh, um, offspring. And so she was, her back was up against the wall also. But there was something when she didn't have anywhere else to turn to. She looks and she sees Naomi's steadfastness on God in the midst of suffering. And there's something when she says, I want your God to be my God. You never know who is looking at you as you're looking at God. And we need some people that when the, the, the ships are, are being beat up by the winds and the water of life, some people that are going to be anchored in Jesus. Ruth was a widow. She was barren. She was alone. She was an immigrant. She was from Moab. And, and just to help you to get a little bit of context of Moab, Moab is where uh, the country Jordan is. So if we were kind of in modern times, she probably would have been like a Muslim or something like that. Because people tend to have regional religions. And so when she says that, like, hey, my God will be your God, it's almost as if she is like um, part of Islam and says, hey, I'm going to be a Christian because of your steadfastness. And out of this revelation, um, what she does is she um, learns a second lesson that's important for Christian maturity. And that is that that you uh, learn how to engage in Christian maturity when you begin to sacrificially serve for the sake of others. Naomi got a chance to see God for teary eyes. Ruth is starting to uh, uh, sacrificially serve for the sake of others. And she um, begins to engage in some backbreaking work as a young woman where she is in the hot, um, humid sun like, like it is today, working in a barley field for hours upon hours trying to, what they say, glean and trying to get barley. Like they took all of the majority of the, of like a, a good majority of the barley for business. And so it was the leftovers that she was competing with other folks to try to get what she could get, the scraps that she could get. And she wasn't just doing that for herself, but she was doing that for the sake of somebody else that came before her. We live in a, a day and age where the, the common phrase called, I'm going to get mine. And we oftentimes live in a time where, where we uh, um, just say, like, hey, I, I need to get my like, degree or I need to get my money. I need to get what, my car. Like, I need to get whatever it is that I need to get for me. But we don't look behind us and serve the people that got us to where we are today. Like, that's just basic uh, um, what it means to be a decent human being. But let alone if you're going to be a Christian, the Bible says that you've got to honor your father and mother. And that's not just natural, but that's also spiritual. 
There is some, the, the first place you learn how to sacrificially serve is within your family, within uh, your natural family, within your spiritual family, by honoring those who have come before you. And this is something that, that, that Naomi uh, um, um, taught Ruth, and Ruth uh, began to experience and grow exponentially in some spiritual growth by, because she was serving somebody else. It was in the midst of this that Naomi uh, put her eyes and was just seeing how well Ruth was honoring her. And she said this. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now Boaz, with whose uh, women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. And this is one thing I want to say that is a really important tip for anybody that's young. I want to encourage you to find somebody old and sit down and talk to them. They'll tell you some things that you just don't know. A lot of the... I learned how to do business from my grandmother that I think maybe graduated from high school... I had a church deacon, and this is something I lament about our church, that we just don't have old people. Like, we don't even have any, like, it's, I hope it's coming. I hope it's coming before I'm the old one. That's a long time. <laughs> but I lament, I had Deacon Wilson that had, like, an eighth-grade education. And I was in college, and Deacon Wilson, I grew up in the old school churches where you just, like, you know, you're sitting down, and you walking. I'm a young man just walking and stuff like that. And, and he's like, hey, son, come over here. And I, you know, you better stop and go talk to him. And he says, son, I see you in college. You know, I only got an eighth grade education because I had to start working to take care of my family. But in all your um, education, uh, get all the education you can get, but don't be an educated fool. And he just would give me wisdom and would drop knowledge. And I want to say find somebody old to sit under because just like Ruth's mother-in-law said, hey, I know some things. I know that Boaz is related to you and this could be an answer uh, 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 to the prayers that we have. Um, One of the things that I do in my life, no matter where I go, no matter what I do, um, for the last over almost 20 years, I have been getting with Pastor Don. We get to go at least twice a month. And while he's on sabbatical, um, I said, man, hey, I'm going to find another older man to get with once or twice a month just to speak in, speak into my life and just to bear it all and to get some wisdom. I, I, I really want to encourage you with that. Sometimes people ask me, hey, what's the quote-unquote secret to success of your ministry? I'm telling you it's been living a submitted life to people in authority. That's the secret sauce. Like, at, like literally everything, and I have not changed out of honor. My parents, uh, who are here today, I didn't know they were coming. They just so happened to come today. Um, grateful for them. And they are spiritual leaders that, um, that I've always submitted to. And I also will tell you that I've also dealt with spiritual abuse from spiritual leaders. And so I know what it's like to go through that pain. And I, I, I could see now um, why the Lord allowed me to, because he knew I was going to have a lot of influence in other people's lives. 
And that's one thing that I, I, I put a guard in my life is that because of the pain I went through, um, I put uh, safety net so I don't uh, um, allow those pains to, to be to be a spiritual abuser also. And so I, I say that, like, I want to just say that, that it is risky. You might get hurt. I haven't gotten hurt. But the principle is still the principle of honor your father and mother, whether it's naturally or spiritually. Amen? So, in verse 3 and 4, it says, so her instruction was, she says, wash, put on some perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Now, I mean, basically, this is like old school women. It's like, hey, don't we go on to that brother all stinky. That's what that says. That's going to be problematic. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him uh, know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, uh, note the place where he is lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this is a very weird text. Like, what in the world is going on? Like, you're like, I don't know. There's so many things you, you can go there. But here's the thing. Spiritual maturity, this is the third thing you see from this text, is that God's limitation leads to innovation. There are times where God could give you certain things but doesn't. There are times where God might give you something but takes it away. And what happens is, is that you uh, um, oftentimes get um, uh, um, these limitations. You're like, God, why are you taking these things away? It's because God wants to break through with some innovation. Some of the most innovative people I know are some of the most uh, 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 limited people that I know. Sometimes we might call it um, Jerry Rig, or we might call it Ghetto Rig, or we might call it uh, 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 um, uh, um, that street hustle, uh, something of that nature. But that's a gift from God. Because when you have it all the time, you just feel like, I can't do something unless I have it all the time. But if you never had it, then you figure it out. And so that is a gift, and this is really important because we, we our church is a multi-economically diverse church. And a lot of times we feel like because I don't have as much as they have, or the other way around, it's because they don't have as much as they have. They haven't gone to the school that I've gone to, so then therefore they can't sit around this meeting and, and, and speak into certain things where I'm not going to, like, ask them questions. But it's that, like, limitations help to get to some innovations. I think the best way to help you understand this is that, like, to understand a little bit of, like, ancient technology um, when it comes to, like, uh, uh, warfare. Before there were guns, before there were bombs, before they had these, like, projectile missiles, they used to have um, a bow and arrows and slingshots. And, like, what the slingshot or the bow and arrow would do is that the further you stretch something back, like, the, the further it would go out. And so... The way this works is that Ruth, you know, she was born a woman. So that was one stretch back. Ruth was uh, a, a Moabite. That was another stretch back. She was married, but then she got, uh, uh, her husband died. And then Ruth um, was barren. There's some people that might have been born a different race 
There might have been some people that may be born under the gender that's not necessarily privileged. There might be some people that didn't go to college. There might be somebody that has uh, um, made some mistakes in their life, might have got incarcerated, might have got pregnant. But the thing is, is that God is a master spear um, and a master air, bow and arrow guy, and, and, and he's going to project you into your destiny. So this is what it is that, that that our innovations come from the limitations because God is the master warrior. This is what the text is teaching us. Like if Ruth didn't have that kind of street hustle, she wouldn't have known how to get around that barley field. And then Boaz wouldn't have got a chance to uh, uh, recognize what was going on in her life. He was checking around. He was seeing what was going on. So here he is, this guy Boaz. He looked kind of like, um, I don't know who he looked like right now. <laughs> Arab <Air> trivia. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, let me just, I, I want to, pray through this because I, I really like this is a part of the message where like this this came to me four o'clock in the morning and um and so let me just take a moment and pray and just try to see what the lord how he wants to do this god i just really pray particularly in this boaz that what we're trying to do as a church is super hard so i just pray lord that um you just need to have the vessel to communicate clearly what's going on in this text and how this applies to our community. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a couple of contextualized things that's really important to understand about this story. Okay, so in the Jewish-Israel um, culture, they have a book of laws called the Torah. And Leviticus is one of these laws. And, um, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, like the place you kind of skip. This was the rule book, the law. It was like the constitution for um, Israel. There were a few rules. One of the rules was that Israel was supposed to be a hospitable place to immigrants. And so there were some people that had land and people that didn't. There were some people that were immigrants and the others uh, um, that weren't. And they said, like, hey, don't take up and consume all of the barley in your field. But what you do is you kind of leave a little bit so that people who are less fortunate than you can actually um, go ahead and glean from those fields. So the scripture says that Boaz was a man of valor. He was a man of good character. And so he um, had this practice of um, just winning the fields because of his religious practice, he practiced generosity because that's what God expects of his people to have a spiritual discipline of generosity. It's also important to understand the context of Bethlehem. Like, you know how when you say Columbine, that's kind of, you associate that with like a mass shooting or you say Ferguson, you associate that with like Michael Brown. Well, when they said Bethlehem, Bethlehem, um, there's a story in Judges 19 where there was a Levite, a guy who was a priest. Well, not a priest, but it was part, part of the, um, the priestly tribe. And he had a concubine. Now, first of all, that's ridiculous on his own. But then 
there was a time before there were kings and people did whatever it is they wanted to do in their own sight. And these are one of these ratchet, probably one of the most horrendous experiences in the Bible where um, the priest, his concubine, um, uh, basically he, there were some dudes that were basically trying to do some gang raping and he, he, he sent her out there. Um, they raped her all night and she um, died the next day. Now, that was already bad, but what he did to communicate that this is horrible is that he cut her body up in 12 pieces, and he sent her body around to um, the 12 different tribes to say, hey, this is off the hook in the land of the promised land. So when you thought about Bethlehem, that's what you thought about in that time. So this gives some context to when... In chapter 2, where Boaz um, sees Ruth, and he's like, hey, I need to, like, protect you by um, um, getting you with my other women, and I'm going to tell the men, like, not to rape you. Now, it's important to understand that it's, it's like, it's, it's just kind of like the way it used to be in the slave fields or the cotton fields. If the foreman wanted, was feeling a little horny, the foreman would do what he wanted to do. And that would um, reproduce some folks. Now, I'm just saying, like, I'm, this is the Bible. This ain't no, this is a PG-13 text, right? All right? So, so, so when he is, things are so ratchet in Bethlehem that you got to go around and say, hey, don't rape them. Just because you're saying don't rape them make you a hero. You understand that? Like, like, Boaz is not a hero in the story. Boaz is just trying to be a decent man. But things have gotten so twisted that saying, hey, just don't rape him, uh, um, makes him a, 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 a hero, a man of valor. This is the way it is in our time. There are some things that are in our time where we just hardly even know what a decent man looks like. We live um, in a story here in Richmond where, of, of, of where it's been race, where the goal is just not to be racist. Like, that's crazy. So then if you just, like, become a part of a multi-ethnic church, it's like you're doing something. But, like, nobody's a hero because you're part of a multi-ethnic church. Like, you just going to church and just doing what the Bible says you should do. So Boaz was a, a, a man that cultivated generosity in his, his spiritual practice. But his generosity was coming out of a place of power and privilege. And here's the thing that I got 4 a.m. this morning. Eastern Fellowship has been a church that's been more welcoming to Boaz's than Ruth and Naomi's. It's a place where people of privilege come to worship majority. We have a neighborhood full of Naomi's and Ruth. We, there are more statistically, more Naomi's and Ruth. And after 10 years of talking about justice and reconciliation, we struggle like crazy for Naomi's and Ruth to be a part of our community. Now, here's the thing that's like, that's not even the hard part about this text. 
the hard part about this text is what God calls Boaz to do. God doesn't just call Boaz to continue to practice um, his uh, generosity out of the law or to um, even um, be generous out of a place of power and privilege. But God is inviting Boaz to practice generosity out of a place of sacrifice. So what this means is you got to understand a little bit of what the Kingsman Redeemer is all about. It was a law that was put into place because, again, it's a patriarchal society. So the Levites put, um, so, so God um, put this in the, in the scriptures, like in Leviticus, that, hey, um, if there's a woman that their husband dies um, because deeded property um, only um, can be transferred to, from one man to another, it can't be transferred to a woman, then what needs to happen, so, so that land is basically their livelihood and their sustainability, right? And so what's happening is, is that the, um, what the, 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 the man's brother should marry the woman so that, you know, she could still have a livelihood off the land. Does that make sense so far? And so when Naomi is like, hey, there's this law, and there's a guy named Boaz who maybe could fulfill this law so that we don't be out here starving in these streets. And so what she uh, um, does is kind of give her a plan to kind of like, hey, uh, um, um, in the middle of the night, um, while there isn't like um, a lot of people going on where you've got to get this attention and this focus, hey, make him aware of this law and also like um, um, ask him basically to, to like uh, be his kinsman redeemer so that maybe we can find a way to, to get our land and um, um, to be able to like, buy his property so that we could sustain ourselves. Here's the thing that um, I'm, I'm going to read this text. It says, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, I went to lay down uh, far at the end of the grain pile. Ruth appeared, approached quietly uncovered his feet, laid down in the middle of the night. Something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman laying down, and he said, Who are you? He asked. And she says, I'm your servant, Ruth. She said, Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are my guardian redeemer of our family. This phrase, spread the corner of your garment over me, was basically saying, Hey, will you marry me? And not only will you marry me just to take care of me, but will you be my guardian redeemer of our family so that I can kind of take care of Naomi also? Here's where the rubber meets the road in our cultural context. We live in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. We are um, in a church where it's a multi economic space. And there are people uh, in our church that are here now. There are youth in our youth ministry that um, have a very um, unlikelihood to be able to survive the economic turn. And there are some of us that um, will not be affected by this at all. Matter of fact, there are some of us that might even benefit from the economic term. Like our, our houses, like we could buy and build bigger houses so it could be nice houses. And we might even be some of the reason why the economic turn is, is going on. There's a lot of people that live in this community that um, has really nice houses and we are a part of the gentrification that's going on. But we got brothers and sisters in our midst that are struggling 
in this space and maybe the Lord might be calling us to be kinsmen redeemers and not just people giving uh, our generosity of our privilege or even out of our tithes. This is something that like, it's, 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 it's a radical understanding of God's hesed. God might be calling some of us to do something that began to ask some questions that, see, what, what, what Ruth was asking Boaz to do was life-changing radical. He was, he was saying, like, hey, will you marry me? And not only marry me, but, but will you um, take care of the land and to be able to uh, um, just alter your life for uh, um, the sake, I'm going to say, of the gospel. I don't know what this means for us as a church, but we can't do crossless reconciliation. It's going to have to cause for somebody to die in order to see a crazy resurrection. And this is what this text teaches us in this particular context. It's one thing to advocate for people in the margins from a place of privilege and power. But it's another thing to become a kingsman redeemer. I think this is what God is calling us into. I have no idea what this means. But I do think this is a prophetic word. I think this is something that we got to lean into. I think this is something that we got to say, Lord, what is it that you're trying to do? God's calling us as a church to grow up. We got to see God for teary eyes. We got to see God's limitations to lead to innovations. And we got to sacrificially serve for the sake of others. And um, that's going to mean one thing if you're a Ruth. That's going to be another thing if you're a Boaz. Let's pray. I think there's some folks in this... um, I just really feel like there's no way um, for anybody other than you and God to know how you respond to this, this word. For some of you, you're struggling with something, and you got to be able to see God for teary eyes. For others of you, um, you either are having a hard time um, recognizing the limitations in your life and um, seeing that as a grace of God. Um, there's some shame around the limitations in your life. For others, there might be an overinflation of your reality. And um, you don't receive the gifts of others who might be more limited than you. And then for others, there might be, I mean, all, God's calling all of us to sacrifice, but it, it looks different if you're Ruth or you're Boaz. One of the things I want to encourage you to do is, um, as you see this picture, Try to figure out who are you in the story. And what is it that God is, 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 is speaking to you? Aaron, is it okay if, like, they look at the picture while y'all sing a song? Yeah. Cool. And then the second song, you can take it from there. Be thou 
my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all to me, saith thou day or by night waking or sleeping thy presence my life be thou my wisdom and thou my truth
can have your seats for a couple minutes. I just want to share some words with you. You know, the story of Booth, Booth, the story of Ruth kind of is a love story. It's about God's unfailing, always persevering, just no beginning, no end love for us. It literally goes beyond all that I can think or imagine that that love has been extended to me. God's loyal love, God's steadfast love is extended to me and it's extended to you. I just want to read a poem that speaks about God's relentless love towards us. It says, Where have you hidden yourself, O my beloved? You fled having wounded. I pursued, but you had gone. In search of you, my darling, I have scaled the highest clouds, scoured wooded valleys, roaring torrents, whispering gales. When you first regarded me, your eyes filled with grace. Thereby, again, my eyes merited to adore you. You are my heart. You are my heart. All right, let's leave room for the Holy Ghost. All right. All right. Um, Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for the celebration of your relentless love. We thank you for the love between Marcellus and Brooke. Uh, we celebrate, we honor you today. In Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.